Uh, yeah, like Joe said, my name is Jack. I was a part of CSF throughout my years at IU. Um, so I'm really excited to be back here. This is a big part of my college experience even in my faith walk as well. So yeah, d- definitely an honor. Ben, thanks for asking me to, and Joe, come back and speaking. I got to know Ben a lot better too when he worked at Sherwood Oaks. Um, he was my boss for a while. That was awesome. And yeah, it's just great to be able to come back and see what God's doing in the ministry that impacted me so much. Um, also, I'm excited to be talking on Jonah, partly because I think I'm qualified to talk about it. I'll tell you why. Um, I got to go to Israel a few years ago. Here's a, a picture of me and Elijah Earl, CSF name drop. Um, this is us in Israel eating a big fish. So it's a little bit of a reverse of like what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, that was 90% chance I wasn't going to get a laugh. And I knew it, but I put it in there anyway. Because uh, I thought it was stupid uh, in, a, in a good way. So... There's that also, if you guys don't know me, which again is likely, you might know my wife. We just got married this summer, and she just graduated in the, in the spring. So her, Hope, get married to you, Stanley now. So uh, there's my connection, if that's helpful, so you can know like why, you know, you know who I am and stuff and why I'm here. So, um, so yeah, like I said, I'm excited. My question for you guys is, are you excited to be here right now, getting to learn about Jonah, getting to be in this series on Jonah? Um, and... I'm asking that because I think you ought to be excited, and a lot of the reasons for that are what Joe went into last week, explaining um, how unique and different of a book Jonah is. Not, not just like in the Bible, it is a unique book in the Bible, but it's in, in particular in the scope of the prophetic books that are in the Bible. Uh, not only is it unique, it's the opposite in every way of what you'd expect out of uh, reading a prophetic book. Um, and what's exciting about that is that whether it's in Jonah or it's in the rest of the Bible, because like the biblical authors do this all the time, when something is so different and weird, it ought to make us lean in and be like, well, why is that that way? Because that's not what I expected. What happens a lot if you grow up in church is you hear stories like, well, yeah, there's a big whale, it ain't a man, also snakes talk. That's, we all know that, that happens all the time. And you, you forget to ask the question of, well, that's not normal, that doesn't happen in the normal day-to-day. And you don't lean in and you don't actually get to, to learn uh, what's going on underneath there. So what God does through biblical authors doing that is he has a lot of treasure. You're, on a, you're, on, you're sitting on a lot of treasure when something is strange and different. And so we're sitting on a lot of treasure right here with Jonah. So that's, that's what's exciting about tonight as we get to kick off chapter one here. But even for these, the next few weeks, uh, you guys get to um, yeah, learn a lot and, and see what God has to teach um, this community and you and, as an individual, which is exciting. doesn't mean it won't be convicting this book yeah, you might not walk out unscathed because it's, it, it, it's not just about Jonah, it's also about us. And, and Joe did a great job creating some context about this book and where we are at in the Bible here. I'll, I'll bring up just two really quick additional pieces of context about the prophets. Um, there's about five different periods of prophetic history in the Bible where God has sent his messengers to speak uh, to Israel and, and sometimes other nations as well, as we'll see today. Um, the pre-Assyrian period, the Assyrian period, Babylonian period, exilic period and the remnant period. Um, all, all of these are different periods where God sent messengers because his people had lost the plot of the story that he'd given them, the mission he'd given them, which is when he brought them out of Egypt was to be a kingdom of priests in the middle of the world, that everybody would see them, how they treat each other, how they interact with God, how they interact with, with foreigners. They'd see that and then they'd know who God is, okay? So when that doesn't happen, when they lose that, when they forget how to do that, things get so off track that they're interacting with the world in a way that's actually dangerous, where other nations want to take over them. And that's what happens with the nation of Assyria, which we'll talk about a bit later. Um, and so then God sends messengers to warn them, like, hey, this, something's happening here that's wrong. We need to get back on track, or else things will happen that we're not going to like. 
That's Jonah is a prophet in the Assyrian period. Another thing too, just about prophets as like in a broad sense. There's a, I think oftentimes when we think of prophets, they sound pretty harsh. We think of them somewhat like these people, like street preachers who are just mad at you. You're going to a basketball game and they tell you before you go in that you're going to hell, which is a nice message to hear because they're, yeah, they're angry. Um, and we read the prophets, it's like, this, this is pretty harsh. This is pretty like scathing language to be using with people. And so you read that and you're like, why are these people so angry? And we might associate them with this kind of, you know, message when in actuality, that's not what's happening here at all. Uh, I think we kind of take what we experience in our culture today and, and apply it incorrectly on what's happening um, throughout the Bible and the prophets. Walter Brueggemann says about the role of the prophet, their roles is twofold. It's to critique and it's to energize, okay? And so when they critique, that might be the harsh language thing we're, we're, we'd think of or uh, like when we'd read anything in the prophets because um, it's a critique. It doesn't have to, it's not necessarily it's going to be um, this super agreeable thing. It's, it's going to be uh, confrontational. But the reason that they critique, he says it always starts with grief because the prophet sees what's going on they see how far off it is from what God has intended, and they genuinely grieve the gap between there. And then it's their job to get their audience, the nation that they're speaking to, whoever, to also see how bad that is and how sad that is. And so when that happens, when they're all on the same page, like this is not a good thing, then uh, they, their second job is to energize, and they energize with hope. So grieving how bad it is, hoping though for how good it can be and how good God wants it to be. So that's their job. Okay, so that's, that'll be important So this, for these two things. It's a Syrian period, roll the prophet to critique and to energize. Um, that'll come in to play later uh, as we go on in this chapter. Um, but let's uh, talk about specifically Jonah. So we'll just jump in with uh, verse 1, chapter 1. If you have your Bibles or apps, whatever, you can read along, but I'll be reading too. Some of the verses are kind of long, and so they're not going to all be on the screen. Uh, This is verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So like Joe mentioned, uh, this book of the Bible, this, this prophet prophetic book begins the way all of the other ones do. The word of the Lord came to blank. And what we would expect is that the, the ensuing chapters and verses are all the poetic prophecy of this prophet from God. What we get is a story about a prophet who runs away from God. So those are the two surprising things. So God speaks and then Jonah flees. And what the authors are trying to point out here um, in, in these, just these three short verses, it's not like he just didn't do it. Um, they communicate how disobedient this was. And so, for one thing, Tarshish, where he goes to, um, they said, like, at that point in the world, that was the furthest east, like, location in the known world of that day. Nineveh is the opposite direction. So he doesn't just go away. He goes in the opposite direction as far as he can possibly go. Also, other uh, scholars talk about Tarshish as being a place that symbolizes paradise and comfort. So he's running away from the discomfort, like, the uncomfortable thing God's calling him towards, the thing he doesn't want to do toward his own comfort in the opposite direction. So he's not just being disobedient, he couldn't, he's doing something that couldn't be possibly any more disobedient. That's, that's what they're trying to paint here. And so well, the, the first question I think we need to ask is why did Jonah run? God gave him a commandment, God gave him a word to share. Normally, prophets would do that. They'd go and speak the word of the Lord to the, the, the audience that it's intended for, but Jonah runs. So I actually want to ask you guys, feel free to like, actually talk back to me, why do you think Jonah ran? If you know the story, just like given so far what we've read, why do you think he might have run? Countries don't like each other. He doesn't like Nineveh. As a, okay, what do you guys think? Over here, thanks. Scared of them. Okay, 
Totally. Yeah, so context there too. Nineveh, capital city of Assyria, just talked about um, that nation that, uh, like, if, because this is in the Assyrian period, in the Assyrian prophets, um, the pre-Assyrian is before Assyria took over Israel. And they also were conquering all the nations around them. So they were the enemy of Israel, but also everybody else. The Assyrian per, uh, period implies, oh wow, Siri heard Assyrian and got uh, ears perked. Anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, it implies that they have taken over. They took over the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah has not been taken over yet. So Jonah and everybody else has seen what the Ninevites do, what the Syrians do. It's brutal. Like there's historians that talk about how like they would torture people and capture them and the way they'd lay siege on a city. It wasn't just like normal war. It was like terrible and brutal and super violent. Uh, so, okay, he sees that happen and God says, go in the middle of that city and tell them I'm mad at them. How, how well is that gonna go? He's probably gonna get killed, right? So fear makes sense, right? Doesn't like them, fear, anything else? Inadequate? Well, why are you asking me? I don't really trust that I can do it. This is a pretty, a pretty big task. That's great. He doesn't want them to repent and be forgiven. Okay. Okay, great. So tying it, maybe he doesn't like them. Okay, if he goes and talks to them, they're going to hear a message. He does, he, like he's prideful. He doesn't like the Ninevites because of what he's seen them do. Maybe, honestly, probably a blend of lots of these reasons here. The reason I ask, though, you guys to think about this with me is because if we know why Jonah ran, we'll be more likely to understand the lessons God's trying to teach him. Because God's going to correct him. He disobeyed. He's going to correct him. And the way God corrects him will, I think, imply to us like why he ran. And if we misunderstand why Jonah ran, we might misread some of the story, okay? Let's read. Okay, this is going to be the longest chunk we're going to read tonight, but just bear with me. The rest of it's shorter. Um, this is verses 4 through 12. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he had, was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So it's like Jonah's like, Hey, I, I need to get out of here. I'm fleeing from my God. And then like, Hey, who's your God? The one who made the thing that's like, you know, causing a storm right now. So that's... Yeah, seems pretty foolish, right? So they're even more afraid. Then they say to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So we were talking about these different motivations for why Jonah might have run. Fear being one that like makes total sense. And I think like for most of my life hearing this story, it's like, well, yeah, he's afraid. Why would you want to go and do that? Uh, and the, the VeggieTales version, a lot of them are slapping each other with fish, and so he doesn't want to get slapped with fish, so he's afraid of the fish slapping. Makes sense. Um, truly, it does. However, what's interesting in this passage is like if, if Jonah is afraid because of the danger he'd be putting himself into by speaking to the Ninevites, why isn't he afraid of the danger of this storm? Not only is he not afraid, he couldn't be more at peace. He's sleeping. Like I like sleeping when there's rain falling on the rooftop. Like it's the best. Turn on the ceiling fan. I'm out like a light. It's different if I'm on a boat that's like getting rocked by these waves and it's about to sink. 
I w- nobody could sleep. Everybody would be trying to figure out what to do. Um, so that's just like, that's a weird detail there that he's actually fast asleep. I, I think we also just see in these verses here some of Jonah's, Jonah's attitude, which I think might indicate what's going on in his heart and why he ran. So you see him completely disengage. Like he's not, he's not like helping out with any sort of solution. He's, he's by himself. The, the captain of the ship needs to wake him up to even get him to do something. Like it's like pulling teeth to get him to, to share any details or to help in any way. And you'd think though, like if they are all in the same, day, they're literally in the same boat. They're all gonna sink. They're all gonna die. You think that that would lead him to be like, all right, there's some solidarity here. It doesn't matter our backgrounds or our differences. We need to survive, right? Let's, let's fix this. But he doesn't. Like, he, like everybody else is trying to do their part and save like, the ship and save everyone's lives, except Jonah, which is not what you'd expect, especially from somebody who's supposed to be a prophet of God. It seems like fear is not something that's controlling him. Like it's, it's this weird, like, almost opposite, comically opposite of fear. And so then I wonder if his disengaging attitude indicates what's already going on in his heart towards the Ninevites, which is disdain. He doesn't want to talk to them because he doesn't like them. He's, maybe I'm sure he's afraid of them, but also um, he's seen them do terrible things to his family, to his friends, to his neighbors. It's understandable. He doesn't like this nation, doesn't like this, this, this city. And so then maybe some of that disdain, that attitude is going towards the sailors as well who are also pagans. He's just, this, he's just checked out. It's like, if, you don't, if you're not a part of my people, then you're on your own. I wonder if that's more so what's going on here. And so, granted, though, he does eventually say, like, all right, yeah, put me, throw me in the sea, it's my fault. But he doesn't really do so in a way of, like, yeah, God, I'm so sorry, this is on me. He just, like, he just offers a solution eventually, but only after having to be woken up from a deep sleep and after them casting lots and all these different ways of trying to figure out what the problem is when Jonah for sure knows it's his fault from the get-go. Um, and so that's interesting. If you remember, we talked at the beginning about the role of a prophet is to criticize and energize. If the prophet really grieves, they, they, they're going to critique out of grief, and then they're going to energize out of hope. It seems like Jonah doesn't want anything to do with that. Like, there's no way he's grieving the idea that Nineveh is sinning and could be in trouble for it. And he certainly isn't hoping that they might get saved. In fact, maybe it's the opposite. He wants them to be destroyed. Uh, you might see that attitude reflected later on in later weeks and sermons and stuff. Jonah is, you'd expect the prophet of God to care to want to bring hope, to want to bring people to realization, to wake them up to what's going on. But if, if a prophet like Jonah hears that, they hear God say, hey, go speak to this people, they're going to assume, okay, then that means, God, you might want to forgive them. It's not that like God doesn't just send his prophets to go like speak about fire and brimstone and then get out of there. It usually wakes them up and then they have a chance of redemption. And so if, if Jonah can see the dots, connect the dots to where that's going, it's like, well, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to help them because of what they've done to us and that they're our enemy, all of these things. So again, just Jonah behaving in the exact opposite way that we'd expect a prophet to. So now, uh, I think the question's important. Like I said, like this story definitely, it's about Jonah, but if we don't pause and see how we can see ourselves in the story, we're doing a disservice. So my question is to us, why do we run? Why do we run from the things that God might ask us to do? Perhaps a better question is, do we do the same thing as Jonah? Do we act like Jonah? For instance, is forgiveness ever hard for you guys? Like forgiving somebody who's wronged you, not even, okay, that's, that, that can be hard, right? But I imagine uh, somebody who you don't even like, like that much, maybe they wrong you all the time, you'd even consider them an enemy, and then Jesus tells you to forgive them, to love them, to pray for them. Is that ever hard? Like that's like, maybe it's just me, I don't know. But that's, uh, that's not easy. Is there anybody, like any, a, a single person, maybe a type of person, a group of people that may be in your mind, 
in my mind, like, you just kind of write, write them off as like, yeah, okay, God does love everybody. God could forgive everybody. But man, it, that'd be, they'd have their work cut out for them in order to actually get God's grace. Like, do we ever do that? And that might sound like pretty harsh to say it that way, but in our subconscious, do we ever think that way? Because um, it's easy to be like, well, no, I go to, I go to encounter, I go to church, um, I read my Bible, I'm doing these, I'm like being a good Christian, I abstain from all those public sins, so everybody sees that, so I'm good. I feel like, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like as bad as Jonah, though, right? However, Jonah also, like he's a prophet of God, let's remember that, so by like, and it matters speaking, he's in with God, he's one of the people of God, he just didn't do one thing God asked him to do. That's what we're saying, he's painted in a pretty bad light up until this point, he's disengaging, he's neglectful, he's spiteful, all these things. He disobeys God. But the thing is, he's also still a prophet of God that God chose. And so God's also chosen us, and maybe there's just one or two things every, every now and then, like we're just not willing to do that one thing God asked us. So it sounds like maybe we actually have more in common with Jonah than we think. Um, even if it's not, the circumstances aren't exactly the same. We all have been guilty of this at least once in our life. Um, and so I, I would say a story from college that encapsulates this kind of attitude that really like bothered me. It was my freshman year. I went to a church nearby. Um, it was like near Bloomington. I don't think, I'm not sure there's churches around here. I'm not sure. So you guys wouldn't know. I'm not using the name, so whatever. But the point is, when I was there, um, there was a pastor. I don't even know what the message was about, but somehow he brought it around to where he was talking about Bloomington and about the college students here. And he spoke about their sin and about their evil and about how like this, this city is so evil. And he wasn't, it wasn't even like, hey guys, this, this is a broken city, but we can say, like, we're here for a reason. We can love them and show them Jesus. It wasn't any of that. It was just like, they're, they're partying and having sex. Like, that's the only place where that happens in the world. Like, it happens everywhere, right? So I was sitting there like, this is, I was really upset because for one thing, it just seemed like there's not the attitude Christians are supposed to have, but also imagine if somebody who was trying to figure things out, but also was doing the things that he was speaking so negatively about, came into church and heard him saying that. What would they think Christians think about them? What would they think God thinks about them? I was upset. Like, that, that attitude exists like in us, and I think it's easy to be like, well, I'm not like that bad or that harsh, I don't see people that way, but, and I even think that, I'm like, yeah, I would never be like that, but uh, the convicting thing for me as I was even preparing for this, like, talk here was I was, like, reading this, I'm like, this is a good story, there's some convicting, subversive things in here, I'm sure people are going to need to hear that, um, I, yeah, I guess it applies to me too, but I'm not, like, that bad, I'm not as bad as Jonah, like, doing that thing, and as soon as I thought that, I'm like, well, I just did the same thing Jonah's doing. Uh, Tim Mackey talks about the story, he calls it a trap, because as soon as you read it, and you're like, Jonah, you're, you're just as bad as him. Because if Jonah has an attitude of, I don't want these people to be saved, I don't want to go do that, I don't want God to have grace on them, that presupposes that he thinks that he's better than them, right? If he thought that they were equal to, well, then God's grace applies to everybody. He doesn't see it that way. And so even when we read this story, the moment we think, oh man, I'm not as bad as Jonah, even though there's other moments that would prove that we're similar to him, like that moment in and of itself shows us, okay, this applies to us too. Like we run from God and we run from his way of doing things, the way he sees the world all the time. So I want to bring us then to what God's lessons are. We've talked about what the motivations might have been. What lessons does God teach to Jonah and us in light of uh, these things? So I'll read uh, verses 13 through 16 here. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Like, by the way, not like a random God. This is like the God, Yahweh. Like, all capital L-O-R-D means that they're using the, the Hebraic name for God. Um, o Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as, you, as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. 
Okay, so we also talked like earlier, like at least maybe you thought this. Um, it's kind of a silly idea to think that Jonah could run from God. And they see that. It's like you're running from God, but he's like this powerful. Why would you have done that? It's silly because we know like God's always around. He's always near. You can't escape his presence. So it seems weird this prophet who would know that is like fleeing still. Because um, we know that. Like we see that in the storm, right? He runs and then God's presence is seen like he, he corrects him. The, the consequence there is that God causes this great storm to happen. So we see God's nearness and his presence happening to Jonah there. But I think we also see it somewhere else that might be a bit more subtle. I think we see it in the actions, the behaviors, and the hearts of these pagan sailors. We see God's presence actually interacting in that way too. I'll give a few examples. Um, I think my favorite one is the first one I'd say we see uh, is when the captain says to Jonah, he wakes him up. The word he uses, he says, arise, call out to your God. The book begins with God telling Jonah to arise. It's the same word. What you expect when you read a prophetic book is to see God's word came to them and you see the word of God coming out of their mouth. We don't see that. The first time we see the same words that God used coming out of somebody else's mouth, it's not the prophet, it's the pagan, which is interesting. Um, also, uh, you see the sailors actually trying to solve the problem and when they figure out that Jonah's the problem, they're okay. Well, let's, let's just like make sure. And then when they find out he's a problem, it's like, okay, what can we do? And then he suggests throwing me overboard. And like, no, no, no. Actually, we're going to try it. Like, that's the, last, that's, that's the last resort. They row harder and harder than there is that they can't do it. And even then, they actually like say to God, okay, we don't think this is the right thing to do, but it seems like this is what you want us to do. And then they do it. It's like they, they keep like deferring to God who they don't really know or have a relationship with, but they're the ones doing it. Jonah isn't. And then after the storm ceases, it says that they, that they fear the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to him and made vows. So like this behavior that you wouldn't expect to see from pagan sailors, you'd expect maybe to see from a prophet of God, but you're not seeing it from him. And so the very people in this story that Jonah expects and that we might expect to show godliness are not the people that actually we see godliness in. We, we expect the pagans to be ungodly. We see them being godly. We expect, and Jonah expects himself to be godly, but we see ungodliness. And it's not even like, oh yeah, we see some of that in them. It's even more dramatic than that. The only ungodliness we see in this story so far is from Jonah. The only godliness is from the pagans. So it's like God is at every turn showing Jonah, showing us, you are wrong about the people I've asked you to speak to. Your assumptions about them, your feelings about them are wrong. Because I'm going to even use my words through this person to speak to you. Like that had to, that had to be a convicting uh, experience there. That had to be a moment for Jonah to realize that he's not, he's not right about this. And then we have to take stock of that and say, when are we wrong about our expectations and our assumptions about other people? Who we might, in our minds, put outside of the presence of God. But God's saying, no, my presence is actually still with them too. Like at every turn, that's what God's doing. And so I would say if our expectations end up being wrong in this story, even dead wrong, not even kind of wrong, but completely wrong, just like Jonah's were, then perhaps outside of the story in our actual lives, our expectations can be wrong as well. So I want to uh, read this passage from Matthew 9 that came to mind as I was thinking about this theme here. This, this also might be a familiar uh, passage for you guys or maybe like a verse you've heard. Yeah, this is verses 35 uh, through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Um, if you've heard that before, 
like I have. Like, I think it's easy to read that. Uh, and to, to think of what Jesus is saying is the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of sin in the world. There's a lot of sinners. And we need to get them not to stop being sinners. But unfortunately, there's not that many Christians. There's not that many followers of me. So alas, there's a lot of people in the world. Well, first of all, if, we're, if, we, would, if we would identify that the, the harvest would maybe represent people that don't know God, I think it's first important to notice like what, how Jesus sees them and responds to them. It says he has compassion, which is not strange or out of the character for Jesus. Everything he does, he sees with compassion. He acts out of compassion. He moves out of compassion. Uh, we don't do such a great job of that. And definitely Jonah here juxtaposes how he sees people. He does not have compassion whatsoever. But more than that, it's interesting to, to note that he says the harvest, which is at the end of the agricultural process. I'm not sure if I'm using that term correctly. You get it. Like at the, the harvest is when like the fruit, the, the, the crops have grown, like you're, it's time to gather them. The, the work, the labor of the planting, the tilling, the, the water, the watering, all of that, that's done. That work is completed. It's time for harvest. The work is already done. That is different than what I think I would expect when I read that verse. It's like, well, yeah, people don't know God. Like they gotta, I mean, that's hard work to, to be saved by God. Uh, that's not an easy thing. But Jesus is saying it's the harvest. Like the work's already done. I'm closer to these people than you might think. I'm closer to that person you think doesn't know me and doesn't have any inclination of who I am. I'm actually way nearer to them than they realize and even you realize. Um, and so when Jesus says that the laborers are few, again, it's, it might be easy to think that that's, well, that's because there just aren't enough Christians and it's a post-Christian world and all of that. We're at IU, there's like so much sin going on. The laborers are few. But what God is saying, I wonder though, if the laborers are few, not because there aren't enough believers, but because we as believers have failed to recognize and to notice how God is already loving, pursuing, and choosing people that don't know him yet. And they may not be able to put their finger on it. People who don't know God may not even have language to articulate, yes, this is God moving in my life. But then it's a laborer's job to point it out to them, to say, like in your experience, in your life, I've seen, I think I've seen God working. I've seen him even come alive in you in some ways. But when we don't do that, because we think, well, they're not believers, they're not there yet, then we fail them, we fail God and, and his call to bring in that harvest and to, uh, and to help people realize how close God actually is to them and how much he loves them. And so I think what ultimately we fail to see the potential that exists in every person to come to know the Lord, to come alive in the Lord. And that, that's the thing, that word potential, I think, is important. Jonah doesn't see the potential in Ninevites. He doesn't see that any, any hope or reason that they could actually ever be reconciled for what they've done. But when we actually understand and see how God is near and intimately loving everybody already, it, it flips everything and we see every person in the world bursting with potential. Like God's on the move. He's, it's, they are so close. They don't need to figure everything out right away. They just need to accept him. They just need to accept the work that's already been done. Instead of thinking, well, okay, you're, you need to be, okay, ultimately, I, I summarize it with this. We confuse sanctification with salvation. Like, we know that we've been saved, and we know that the work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives after we choose to follow him happens our whole lives. We know that. But then we forget with, with other people. It's like, well, they, had a, like, they believe the wrong things. They're doing the wrong things. We focus on all the ways they might be far from God and, and don't recognize all the ways that God's actually nearing and drawing himself near to them. So, also, uh, another thing that I haven't even mentioned yet or pointed out, is that Jesus here, is like he talks about teaching in the synagogues, he's, he's, they're in the Galilee in this chapter. So he's actually not even around pagan people. He's around the people of God right here. And so I think this applies to everybody, 
But even here, it's like God saying, even the people that think they know me and have it all together, who think that they're in with me, still need my grace, but they don't even know it. And he has compassion on them for that. So the good news, though, is whether you feel like somebody said you're far from God, or you don't have potential to know God, or you just feel that way yourself, or as a Christian, you think you got it all together, but actually you don't. There's grace for that. Jesus is actually much nearer to you than you would ever assume and the work's already been done. We just have to accept it. We have to accept that grace and understand that it's already uh, been done ahead of time for us. So um, perhaps in Jonah's case, perhaps in our case, what we need grace for is failing to see the potential in others. It's failing to see, believe in, and desire God's love and grace for all people because we set up all these boundaries and these rules people have to follow in order for them to get close to God. All right, verse 17 and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah finds himself in the belly of the fish, and he'll get a chance to accept this grace in the next chapter. Come back next week if you want to see how that unfolds. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and uh, Joe will come back up. Uh, God, thank you so much for a chance to uh, come back to CSF, um, to see some familiar faces, to see a lot of new faces. God, thank you for your word, and God, it's, it's unending. All the things we can learn about you and about our world, God, it doesn't end. Uh, God, thank you for the, the creative way you've designed it and you've given it to us. Uh, God, thank you even for the conviction that can be found in it when we do, when we do lean in. So God, I just pray that um, wherever we're, we're, we're at, as we sit in these seats, uh, you give us the humility to receive conviction, but also the humility to accept your grace. God, I pray that for myself too, even as I'm saying it. It applies just as much to me as it would anybody else. God, I just pray for uh, your blessing and your hand over uh, each student in here and over this ministry. God, and, and your purpose for them on this campus, to show them who you are by how they treat each other, by how they love one another, by how they treat other people too, who may, may not be in this community. Yeah, God, just thank you for this opportunity to gather together. We love you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Yeah, thanks, Jack. That was great. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, yeah, help land the plane. Some, maybe you're in here, and maybe you see IU like Nineveh, and you're like, ah, those people out there, they suck, you know? But this is why, this, I love the way he said it. Jonah's a gut punch, because Jonah's a mirror, and it shines right back at you and me. And we, we need the grace that other people need just as much as they need it, and it's just as free as it is for them, for us. Hope that makes sense. Um, yeah, so with that, I just want to pray and invite the band up, uh, and then we'll get worshiping. So, uh, dear Jesus, thank you again for tonight, and thank you for Jack. Thank you for his words, the words you spoke through him. Uh, God, help us to remember that uh, we need you. We need an authentic relationship with you, uh, and nothing, uh, nothing will be able to replace that. So, Lord, I ask that, uh, yeah, as we walk out of here, we would be able to walk uh, knowing you more as a result of being here. Uh, yeah, Jesus is in your name. I pray these things. Amen.